Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Keith Sitch. He is co-founder at Sunderstorm. For those that don't know Sunderstorm, you probably know their products. <laughs> They're one of the largest edible companies in California. I'm excited to talk about this. I think they've really taken some great efforts to really focus on quality and looking at being a, a really major player in the edibles market in California. And they have some plans for expanding. We're going to talk, Keith, a little bit about that and how that works. Why do that? How to do that? Obviously, lots of complexities when you're dealing with multi-state businesses in the cannabis space. And just generally excited to talk to you know a company who has done so well in the cannabis world in, in California, the biggest market that we have in the U.S. Anyway, probably one of the bigger markets in the world as well. But you know, exciting to uh, have a chance to sit down and really hear how the business started, how it's going, and what the plans are. So with that, Keith, welcome to the program. I appreciate that, Bruce. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So let's learn a little bit about you and your background, and then we'll talk about Sunderstorm and, and hear a little bit about the story and, and where you're going. But give us the uh, give us the backstory. How did you get into cannabis? What were you doing before that? Sure. So uh, we started the company in 2015 in California. My partner and I are both uh, we're both undergraduates at Stanford's and have been lifelong friends. 
And uh, after Stanford, I went and worked on Wall Street. So I'm one of those finance guys. After a, about a decade, I left and came back to the West Coast and studied philosophy and religion. And, you know, that was really about studying consciousness, the evolution of consciousness, how we view the world, and uh, which seemed like a pretty natural pathway to starting a cannabis company. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Philosophical underpinnings. Absolutely. My business partner and I have both had the good fortune of being able to travel to lots of indigenous places in the world, uh, Asia, Africa. My partner was in South America. And we really studied plant medicine as well as kind of meditation and, and different ways of, of kind of expanding your consciousness. And all those really fit together, you know, in a glove. And um, so, I mean, you know, when it became apparent that cannabis was going to probably have this wave of legalization, you know, it already had been medical in California for decades. A lot of people had really fought hard for cannabis uh, to be, you know, not the stigma that it had been for, you know, the previous 50 years. And uh, so we came in 2015 and we actually called our company Sunderstorm. What a Sunderstorm is, is the sun shining through dark clouds during a storm. And at that time in 2015, there wasn't a lot of transparency in the marketplace. There wasn't lab no. testing. There was really a, a lot of difference between the quality of products. And we wanted to come in and build a super quality product that our customers would know they'd have a repeat experience every time. And we've really built our company around that mantra. Yeah. Well, it's a great kind of background in terms of why you got into the space. I mean, I'm curious, how did you balance or how did you integrate kind of the, I guess, the some of the philosophy and kind of, you know, the plant medicine culture and background with more of kind of the commercialization of cannabis. I mean, I, I guess, how did that play out for you? Because, I mean, you're, you know, clearly you've got a, a very successful, financially successful company, but you also have these, you know, kind of philosophical underpinnings. Was that easily integrated? Were there challenges at times? I'm, I'm curious to hear more about that. You know, it's really been a lifelong uh, journey, Bruce. My partner and I have both been to Burning Man 20 years. Yeah. And so we really became steeped in this culture that plant medicines can be used to bring people together as community. You know, we look at cannabis as having physically healing qualities, uh, but maybe even more importantly, mentally and kind of consciousness expanding qualities. And I think the cannabis community has always been kind of underground and pretty tight with each other because of this community feeling that when you smoke weed together or you have that same experience together, it's a bonding thing that, that you don't even really need to talk about, but it underpins really kind of many of your relationships in life. So so I think Burning Man was kind of the side of, of us that really opened up to this new world and could kind of integrate it on a creative sense. And then both of us have, you know, 30 years of business experience. That was the other pillar. So it's been a very difficult business to build a company in. So having that business experience has been crucial. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious a little bit about, you know, as you built the business, what were some of the big challenges you faced? I mean, you, you started fairly early in this market and, you know, obviously, you know, we, we've developed a lot uh, since that, since, since 2015, but were some of the hurdles and obstacles you had to overcome early in the business? Sure. Well, we started under Prop 215 when it wasn't, you know, there was no licenses in California and we started in Los Angeles. So the first problem that if you're a gummy company, you need cannabis oil to basically put into your mixture so you can create the product. And we weren't cultivators, but we were basically forced to set up extraction in Los Angeles, which is a, a challenging thing. So we basically started by extracting 
you know, buying trim, extracting the oil, and then using that into our uh, making of gummies. So, you know, the first challenge is that you can't just do one part of the supply chain. You know, you have to do many parts. I mean, can you imagine if the person that makes bourbon had to grow all the wheat, um, (laughs) cut down the wheat, extract the wheat, distill it, you know, multiple times, you know, package it and then have to sell it themselves. So, I mean, it's, it just it was an immature market, which means that you have to be a jack of all trades rather than really a specialist. Yeah, and how has that changed over time? I mean, as you've as this whole market has matured, as supply chains and sources of material and stuff have evolved, how how have you chosen to kind of what have you kept and what have you you know gone to partners and suppliers for? Yeah, so we uh, no longer extract. We've got some great uh, extraction partners. We buy we only buy cannabis oil that has zero parts per billion in pesticides. So for anybody to sell to Thunderstorm and be part of our Kana gummy lineup, you have to have perfectly clean trim, which then ends up in perfectly clean oil. So we really care about the quality of the ingredients that go into our Kana gummies. And then, you know, we basically focus on product development. We've got probably the largest SKU array of gummy products of any company nationally. And then in California, we also we have our own sales team, our own brand ambassador team. And we distribute. So we do actually take quite a bit of the uh, supply chain under our belt in California. And it's really for us in the beginning, we knew this market was going to morph and change more dynamically than any business we'd ever been involved with. And so to be close to your customer, our customer is actually retailers, right? Dispensaries and delivery services because we sell wholesale to the retailers and then they turn around in turn and sell to the final customer. So we wanted to be close to the, you know, our customers through distribution. So we have a point of touching them, you know, two to three to four times a month between sales calls, in-store demos and deliveries. And, you know, our goal is to have excellent customer service. And I think we've accomplished that. Yeah. So you mentioned in the beginning the, the focus on quality, and you mentioned the um, you know zero parts per billions of pesticides. And I mean, I guess what has gone into, or what have you had to do to to develop sort of a, a product at the quality that you really wanted to bring to market? And how has that changed? I guess over time, have you have you as the markets evolved, as as the supply and you know kind of you know the ability of the industry to produce products at different levels? What's changed over time? Tell me a little bit about this quality goal that you have. Yeah. I mean, when you think about walking into Walgreens and buying gum. You know, it's all artificial coloring, artificial (laughs) flavoring. I mean, the entire thing is just one big blob of artificialness. And so, you know, we've spent years testing out different, for example, natural vegetable colors. So our our blue raspberry, part of that coloring is spirulina, right, which Mm -hmm. is uh, similar coloring. In our strawberry uh, type products, the coloring is actually beets. So it takes an enormous amount of kind of R&D to basically figure out what coloring that could be natural will be appropriate for the different flavors. And then what natural flavors can be used to give you, you know, that flavor that you want. So that's this has been a long journey of, you know, we've been in the business for five years and the entire process has been one. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm curious, as you've developed these different products and you mentioned, you know, the extent of your product lines, how have you decided what products to produce, what kind of formulations, what, you know, formats? I'm curious about kind of your product development process and strategy and how that's played out. So we really started with what we call our classic line. So in California, that's 10 milligrams per gummy and 100 milligrams in a bag. And basically, we add terpenes so that it's either a uh, 
indica hybrid or a sativa. So you get that same effect that you can have from the plant itself by taking a gummy. So our focus initially was really trying to create great tasting gummies. A key part of it is really texture. Some gummies are just like super chewy. Others just have kind of a gritty texture. I think we're known in the business as having probably the best tasting, the best texture of any gummy nationally. So we've really built upon, you know, kind of that form factor of quality texture. Then we layered in, you know, the natural flavoring and the natural coloring and really have, you know, we don't use high fructose corn syrup that a lot of our competitors have. So we've really focused uh, on really trying to have a natural gummy because, you know, the people that use cannabis are using it because it's a plant. So we wanted to keep as close to that ethos as we could. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I just flashbacks to the the person that left the gummy pack open, and the gummies are hard as rocks. <laughs> just, just the, we're the worst feeling in the world. Yes, uh, I get that. the The product quality, that whole kind of uh, mouth consistency, mouthfeel is is huge for for these kind of products. So, tell us a little bit about as you've grown. I mean, you've obviously been quite successful in California. How, or I guess, what have been some of the challenges to scaling? You know, the company, whether it's from you know sales and distribution or production or sourcing. You know, how has that played out as you've grown in California? Right. I think the first challenge is really scaling a business, right? So, you know, early on we were selling like 50,000 bags of gummies a month and now we're selling uh, almost 400,000 bags of gummies a month. Jeez. So yeah. to actually scale that business and manufacturing is is challenging. So we were one of the first edibles companies nationally to invest in very sophisticated European confectionery equipment. So whereas I think a lot of people are are basically using by hand filling molds. You know, you can do that for a certain volume of transaction, but you can't <laughs> do that when you're selling the volume that we are. So, yeah. you know, we've invested millions of dollars in equipment. And the outcome of that really is that a precise machine can fill a mold perfectly, exactly four grams every time. And because when your mass of a gummy is identical, then your potency and, and your experience is identical. So we won the award from one of the largest lab testing companies in California for the most accurately formulated edible. What that means is that we're always at 10 milligrams if we say 10 milligrams and the customer experience is repeatable, which is, I think, the key to having, you know, building a brand and, and getting that trust with our clients. Yeah. And how, I mean, I guess, how do you go about doing that? Is it just the sophistication of the equipment? Is this Q&A or, or quality assurance? I mean, how, from an operational point of view, what really drives consistency at, at the level that you're operating at? Uh, well, first, you need to have a feedback mechanism to know how consistent you are. So, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, when we buy oil, it's been tested before we buy it. We then test the oil to make sure it doesn't have, you know, pesticides and we know what the potency is. And then we basically put it in gummies and we're always doing kind of R&D tests on batches to know that our potency and, and quality are good. And then, of course, you know, in California, as in all these states, you have a final lab testing to prove that your, your potency and your cleanliness are accurate. So we spend a fortune on lab tests. Yeah. And that is really the feedback mechanism to know that we're on track. So that's kind of the end of the process. I mean, the beginning of the process is that we have an entire R&D team that are constantly looking at new products. And we've got, you know, a number of new products that we'll be launching here imminently. But all of them have been probably tested for a year before they actually get launched to know that the quality is up to the Kana standard. Yeah. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about brands, how you built the brand, how you've you know decided to launch these different products. I mean, I, I think one of the interesting facets of the cannabis space right now is 
the development of brands. I mean, everyone's kind of moving from, or at least a lot of companies are moving from, you know, just kind of focusing on THC levels to <laughs> actually having some kind of, you know, both product design, but also attributes, aspirational attributes relative to the product and the product brand. How have you approached that? Yeah, we really were thinking about brands in 2015. It really yeah. was, was kind of our focus. We acquired a small gummy company in February 2016 that we've kind of built our business around. But I call that, that was Cannabis 1.0. It was terrible packaging, really an inferior product. And, uh, you know, it had artificial coloring and flavoring. And at that time, we made the bet that California would basically go adult use and that the market would move from being what was primarily a 25-year-old male consumer to being a much more broad demographic. I mean, we bet the ranch early that women would be 50% of the market, as you'd yeah. expect, that older people, a little bit like ourselves, would, uh, would be using the product, you know, primarily for, for kind of medical relief and sleep relief. So we really focused on the brand being really friendly to, it's more of a whole foods kind of look at the time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our, our kind of packaging is very open and friendly and bright. It's not kind of this dark skull and crossbone stuff that existed, I think, early in Prop 215. So yeah. our brand has always been about having it be inclusive. And uh, it's interesting. In, in 2016, 2017, when we were launching the company, my partner and I would do a lot of the in-store demos. And honestly, I was in awe of how really all of society would come into a dispensary. I mean, every race every age group, every social orientation, you know, it really has this massive bandwidth of all types of people, you know, in our country. And so uh, I just feel honored to be part of an industry that uh, is so inclusive. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your future plans here. I mean, you're, you've sort of become quite big in California. Where do you go from here? Tell us about expansion plans. How, how do you approach the multi-state challenge that, that companies have? Give us some details. Absolutely. So we've really, up till now, we focused on dialing in our product in California. And, uh, you know, we were the first company about a year ago to introduce a nano edible. What that means is that uh, the onset time, instead of waiting 45 minutes to an hour, the onset is 15 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes. And so it kind of breaks down one of the challenges of edibles is, you know, you take, you take a, a gummy or a cookie and it, you don't think it's hitting you and you double up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think everyone's had that experience. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So, you know, kind of we keep using science to really dial in the best possible delivery of a gummy. And, you know, we're taking it to extreme, uh, extreme measures. So, you know, we're very focused on product development. And now that we've dialed it in in California and are one of the top gummies and, in fact, one of the top brands in California, we will be opening up in three new states in the first quarter of this year. So, People that have come to California and have had the experience of enjoying a con of gummy are going to have uh, the ability to purchase them in Massachusetts, Colorado, and Nevada by the end of the first quarter. And when you talk about challenges in setting up a cannabis business, the greatest challenge is that every state is a silo. So the weed has to be grown inside that state, extracted in the state, manufactured in the state, sold and consumed in the state. So can you imagine if a liquor distributor... You know, Jack Daniels had a set of 50 manufacturing operations oh, yeah. <laughs> throughout uh, North America. That would be a massive challenge. So oh, yeah. we have to set up our own manufacturing groups in these three states. And we've got 
a very loyal employee base. So we've got 11 employees that have agreed to be part of a mobile SWAT team. So nice. just just to keep the quality of content, like when we launch in these states, we need to have the same quality that we have in California where people are not going to have the Kana experience. So so basically, we're going to be kind of have a mobile group manufacturing these states until we kind of get enough critical mass that we can hire and train really solid local employees. So yeah. that's going to be our, our big challenge in the first quarter of this year. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, one of your keys to success is having, you know, this European confectionery equipment and everything. Is this, you now have to find, you have to set up new processing facilities in each one of these states with the same equipment? We just bought our sixth super expensive oh, gummy geez. depositing machine uh, from Europe. So, uh, yeah, yeah you, you really have to replicate it. But, you know, I think we've done such a good job on having our SOPs, our formulations and our equipment all work in sync together well that uh, we're well positioned to launch in these other states and be successful. Yeah. I'm curious on the financing side. I mean, this stuff sounds expensive. Have you had to take outside investment for a lot of cannabis companies finding, uh, you know, capital to do expansion for, you know, funding, funding expansion could be difficult. How have you approached that? Yeah. So we, we've closed on uh, a couple smaller rounds of financing really has allowed us to, to really launch in California and then, of course, the cannabis capital markets imploded, uh, yeah. you know, a little over a year ago. And it was really uh, when in the middle of 2019, my partner and I looked at each other like, it's not going to be possible to raise <laughs> capital. We need to tighten our belts. Yeah. So we focused on profitability. And, uh, and the good news is, is in 2020, our EBITDA was, uh, was over 20%. So nice. we, we are profitable. And these first three states that we're expanding to are actually expanding with our organic proceeds from California. Yeah, so, so self-funded. Excellent. That part's great. Now that the capital markets obviously have completely changed with a Biden presidency, yep. definitely much more of a willingness to consider, uh, if not legalization, you know, different steps that will get us closer to that. So, you know, public cannabis stocks have kind of taken off. The private market is beginning to loosen up. And we are actually out right now beginning a fundraising so that we can actually open up more states in the second half of 2020. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious how what your strategy is around, you know, the federal legislation and legalization. I mean, I, I can see the conundrum that you can get in because on the one hand, you want to operate in these states, but that requires, you know, setting up facilities in all these locations. But then if we go if we pass federal legislation that make, you know, descheduling cannabis that now would allow you to have interstate commerce at some level or potentially now the question is, all right, well, have I, have I misinvested, you know, because then I can, I can centralize some of this processing and the manufacturing. How have you kind of grappled with that conundrum and made, you know, placed bets, you know, based on what you know and kind of the probability of some of this stuff? My bet is that uh, legalization is going to be a gradual event. It's going yeah. to occur in four or five different steps and it's not going to be a, a sweeping change overnight. And I think even when there is full legalization, I think it's going to take a case going to the Supreme Court that's going to allow a brand or a manufacturer in one state to sell in another state. When you think about it, you know, the West Coast is an ideal, you know, breeding ground for cannabis, particularly, you know, outside in the sun. You know, you've got Oregon, Washington and, and California, you know, that basically provided the entire nation uh, their cannabis for the last 25 years. Yeah. You know, when you think about growing cannabis and, in, in, you know, Northeast, it's going to mostly be inside because it's such a short growing period. So there's a competitive advantage of being on the West Coast for your cost of growing cannabis. But all these states 
legalized it or are legalizing it in order to create jobs locally and have a local cannabis business. So I think even with legalization, there's going to be states like Maryland and Pennsylvania that are going to not want big West Coast, you know, replace their local producers. So I think this is going to be a very long process of working its way out. Ultimately, you know, there's no doubt that at some point in the future, you'll be able to manufacture in a single location and sell throughout the uh, United States. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're right on that. When I mean states have invested so much in their local markets, I can't imagine they're just going to be like, "Oh, okay, we're going to we're going to open up our state borders to any any cannabis producer can come in and sell." It's I just think it's it's not feasible given the investment and, and what's been put in place. So, yeah, I think you're right. It's going to take some time. Anything interesting? I mean, I know a couple of new states came online in this last election. What are you looking at in terms of I guess what's interesting for you in terms of states that are coming in or potentially coming in and how does that impact your strategy and where you're focusing? Yeah. You know, I mean, honestly, looking at the map of the United States, uh, it's easy to salivate, really. I mean, (laughs) Michigan is coming on board as a really deep market. You know, they had one of the largest medical card holders of any state in the nation. So they had a really good base to, to go adult use. Illinois looks like that is actually topping a a billion dollar market today. So, you know, big population, you know, the states that basically are are kind of beginning to open up slowly, you know, Ohio, Pennsylvania, you know, Maryland, they've all had a medical program now for a couple of years and are definitely eyeing, you know, adult use. But I think that, you know, you'd have to be blind to not look at the tri-state region around New York and believe that that will be the single largest cannabis market in the world. And uh, so, you know, New Jersey passing adult use puts the pressure on New York state to pass it congressionally or, you know, with the governor. I think that that the tri-state region, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, always had intentions to work together to legalize and create a unified adult use market. And then COVID hit and uh, priorities shifted, understandably. (laughs) Um, Now that the financial impact of COVID is becoming clear, Uh, These states are like, we need to legalize it in order to have the tax revenue to keep our our state afloat. Yeah. And just kind of looking at how things are structured right now, if if I gave you a magic wand, I guess what would you change around the industry, either about, you know, regulation, legislation, you know, how things are structured, programs, like what what would be, what changes do you think would really help us develop a a successful and positive cannabis market industry for, for society? Yep. I think, first of all, uh, uh, loosening up research. Most of what we know to be true is actually, you know, by customer feedback. Uh, and there's been a surprisingly little research, you know, at, at the university level just because of government regulation. So, you know, we're big believers in science and, and want the opportunity for research to be, you know, widespread in universities uh, all throughout the entire country. So I think that's a, a big point. Second is banking is kind of insane and kind of caveman-ish that most of this industry is is cash-based. I mean, you walk in a dispensary, you have to go to an ATM machine, pay some crazy ATM fee because it's a one-off. You know, it's not Wells Fargo. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so banking, I think, will allow this business to become, you know, more adultish. 
And then eventually, basically having a unified market within within the United States would allow the best and biggest companies to produce at scale and give consumers a much better deal. Because if you produce at scale and can transport between states, you can do it much cheaper. So, you know, our goal has always been to drive down costs and try to give our Kana Gummy customers the best value we can. And by the way, Kana is K-A-N-H-A and it has a tiger logo on it. You'll find it in uh, over 550 retail dispensaries in California and uh, one of the largest gummy brands. And we're, you know, we're really proud of the 180 employees that we have that come to work and are excited to be part of the cannabis industry and and move uh, Sunderstorm along into these other states. Yeah, that's great. Keith, if people want to find out more about you, about Sunderstorm, the Kana brand, where's the best way to get that information? Yeah, the best way is to go to uh, sunderstorm.com where you can basically find out about our different products. And, uh, you know, and I think there it'll point you to the different uh, Instagram accounts we have as well. So that's the best place for someone to go to, uh, to learn about our products. Great. I'll make sure that the URL and, and I'll get the uh, Instagram handles and put them in the show notes here so people can click through and get that information. Keith, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been a real pleasure. Bruce, I appreciate the opportunity. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.